Open your Bibles to Romans 16 as we uh, approach now after two years, a long, long journey through this book, we are approaching the end of our study of this wonderful letter of the Apostle Paul. You know, people think these days about security systems for their homes. There are all shapes and sizes out there. They have all kinds of cameras and sensors and night vision and remote video and you can talk to them and they talk to you and all kinds of things. People want systems that are comprehensive, covering every aspect, it seems, of their home and yet also discreet. You can't always see them there, but they want them to be accessible so they can see them uh, whenever they want to see them, look at them on their phones. They They want all of that, but they don't want it to be visible. They don't want it to feel like a prison with bars and everything everywhere. They want all this stuff. They want this comprehensive security, and they think through all of the various details of protection over their homes and over their families. And while that is certainly important for us to do, it's equally important that we would think through protection for the church. And when I say that, I'm not talking about the buildings or I'm not even talking about the physical bodies, although we give thought to some of that stuff. We have uh, processes and, and procedures that we go through to bring just basic safety. But, but what I'm talking about is something even more important. We might even say something more eternal. Because there is a thief and there is a murderer who is always lurking. He wants to break in and steal and destroy the household of God, which is the church. And he's always targeting, always scheming for ways to do that. The thief, of course, is Satan. And Jesus tells us that he comes only to kill, to steal, and to destroy. His primary target is the body of Christ. He does his destructive work wherever he can, but he loves to attack the children of God. And he's constantly seeking a way to steal, a way to undermine, a way to take away, a way to destroy the church of God. And it would be foolish not to acknowledge that. It would be like leaving your doors unlocked and your windows open and just leaving town, leaving your home unprotected, foolishly, as if there were no threats, there were no people who would take advantage of that. It would be foolish for a church not to realize that there is a stealthy, crafty, and active enemy against the church of God, and he is always at work to do as much damage as he can to the church of God. And so as a church, as believers, we're forced to think about security. We're forced to think about protection. We have to take into consideration how we might protect ourselves against the crafty schemes of the evil one, how we might prevent him from doing his work. Well, that's the topic that Paul turns his attention to in the final verses of this grand epistle. All that he has said about all of our great doctrine of salvation and everything he has said about our Christian life and how we're to live it out, he sort of crowns all of that stuff at the very end here with a parting warning, uh, an appeal to us that we would think about after everything that's been said, that we would give some thought, that we would give some consideration to this issue of protecting, if you will, the church. 
And like so many of Paul's letters, it ends in sort of rapid-fire thoughts, some of it mixed together with greetings, but there's a recurring theme in these disjointed thoughts. It's the idea of protection, the idea of security, protection for the church, protection over the church. The key verse is probably there in verse 20, where he says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Paul, uh, Paul understands that after he has preached all of this doctrine, after all this work has been done to lay the foundations, after you have opened up the Word of God and spoken all the truth, that all that wonderful work can still be undone if the enemy has his way. And so after all of that, he wants to assure us, he wants to anchor the confidence of, of the body of Christ that while we are in a battle for these truths and even in a battle for the church, our ultimate hope is the head of the church, Jesus Christ. It's his grace that will keep us, or as Paul says down in verse 25, he will establish us, he will strengthen us, He will ultimately bring Himself glory through the victory of the church. Now you just listen to the way that Paul ties all this together, beginning really back in verse 17, when he begins his appeal, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught, avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus. Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus, greet you. Now, obviously, Paul is dealing with the issue of divisive people. And his counsel and his instruction instruction here is unambiguous. There's a certain way in which we are to deal with people who are divisive. And Paul balances what he has to say with a, a healthy amount of encouragement so that the Romans who are dealing with the difficulties of this situation don't begin to fear that somehow in the midst of all of it that, that everything's going to cave in, that the church is somehow going to fail or the truth will be thwarted. Because ultimately, he grounds everything in the reality that victory will be ours through the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are so many helpful insights for us right here in this passage. The application, as I said, is unmistakable, particularly for us who in recent days we have been assaulted by brazen attempts of division within our own church, our own body. I'm always amazed, though, by the providence of the Lord, even in the preaching of His Word. We go, we start years in advance preaching through a book, verse by verse, and it just seems like God providentially always has us right at the passage where He can speak to us. 
where he can, he can lead us and guide us as the head of the church exactly what we need to do. And so he's brought us to this place, this passage that deals with exactly what we need to hear at exactly the time that we need to hear it. And so it just comes down to us whether we have ears to hear and whether we have hearts to obey what he so clearly says in his word, right? And this passage is going to help us to understand how God provides for us decisive victory against the divisive one. And when I say that, I'm, I'm very intentional about speaking of the divisive one. Because no matter what might happen within the lives and words and interactions of people, we know where all of this stuff comes from. Paul is crystal clear where all of this stuff comes from. It is ultimately the work of the evil one in dividing brothers against one another, dividing the church for his own evil intent. And he tells us that God's ultimately going to give us the decisive victory. But as it is in so many ways where the Lord works, He works and it involves not only His sovereignty but also our responsibility, His providence, we might say, and our obedience in order to see the full blessings that He intends for the church. And so with all that in mind, I want us to just take a few moments in this passage and take note of three principles that are, I think, uh, exhibited here, three principles that protect the church against the divisive work of the evil one. Three principles that protect the church against the divisive work of the evil one. The first one really takes the bulk of Paul's focus, and it comes to us in verses 17 through 19. And it's simply this call for us to decisively deal with divisive people. The church must decisively deal with divisive people. He says, I appeal to you, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught and avoid them. He wants us to, 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 to scope us, to look out for, to watch out for. One, one uh, group of Greek scholars uh, brings out the implications of this in their lexicon. When, they, when Paul says to watch out, he says the idea is to be ready to learn about future dangers or needs with the implication of preparedness to respond appropriately. In other words, Paul's not just talking about spectatorship. He's not just saying look for this stuff. He's not even saying just sit back and watch it all happen. He's saying don't be caught off guard. Know how you are supposed to respond in these situations and do it. Watch out for it. He says that, uh, that we need to watch out, particularly for those who cause divisions and create obstacles. The Greek construction there kind of groups those two things together with a single article, meaning that this is a uh, a specific instance, a specific even group of people. Many people believe that because the article there, Paul has uh, specifically some situation, maybe similar to Corinth, where he had gotten a report from Chloe's people about all kinds of divisions that were going on in the church and the, and the rumors just spread throughout the Mediterranean uh, uh, world and Paul had gotten word of it through Chloe's people that there were divisions there. Well, perhaps something similar was happening here and he knows that there are these people who are making divisions within the Roman church. And he doesn't 
say exactly what the issues are over which they're dividing. He simply says they were creating these divisions and obstacles. Two words, as I said, describing the same thing. Uh, the, the second one there, scandalon, an obstacle, a stumbling block, basically means a temptation to sin. And so he's warning about these people who are causing divisions in the congregation and who are creating opportunities or causing temptations for people to act sinfully. The temptation is obvious. It is the temptation to join together with them in their divisive scheming, to sinfully stumble into all of that. That's the stumbling block. It is the invitation to sin by joining together in dividing from brothers and sisters in Christ. And all of this, Paul says, is contrary to the teaching that you've received. He's not saying that they were teaching some specific doctrine. He was not saying that they were guilty of some sort of heresy. He's saying that the whole dynamic of causing division and creating this temptation to sinfully divide from your brothers and sisters, that whole dynamic is against what you have been taught. That's the way Paul uses the Greek article here, just grouping all this stuff together, this whole business of causing divisions and creating stumbling blocks. Their life, their behavior was what was really contrary to Scripture, not so much their doctrine. Now, we don't have time to trace this out, but it's safe to say that everywhere you turn in Scripture, there are very, very clear instructions regarding this issue. Preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, right? If you want to think just of one of them in Ephesians 4. Or even the final prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ as He lay agonizing on the ground at Gethsemane with a prayer that was essentially for the unity of believers. Or Colossians 3, put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love which binds Everything together in perfect unity, perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to indeed, excuse me, to which indeed you were called in one body. This is what had been taught. I mean, you could just go through page after page of Scripture and you see it again and again. This is what is consistently taught throughout the New Testament. It was even taught in the book of Romans, as we've seen in past weeks. And yet, what, this is what these men have turned away from in their lives, trying to draw others away into sinfully separating from the body of Christ. They were creating stumbling blocks. They were creating temptations to sin. And so the solution for this, our responsibility, Paul says, is clear. Avoid them. Avoid them. Steer as far away from them as possible. In fact, that, that's the way the word is translated in many ancient works and in even other places of 
of the uh, Scripture is simply steer clear of them. The word basically has this idea of purposely avoiding association with someone. Paul uses the word in 2 Timothy 3.5 when he talks about those who, he says, have an appearance of godliness but deny its power, avoid such people. They have an appearance of godliness. They have an appearance of wisdom or whatever it might be. But the appearance is what makes them so dangerous. The outward form of religion is what makes them so dangerous. It is merely outward. It is not transformative on the inside. So stay away from them. Now this is shocking, scandalous for some people to hear such a thing, to think such a thing that you would ever act so decisively against anyone. They have a hard time reconciling this with the idea of love. They have a hard time imagining that the same person who told us back in Romans chapter 12, do everything within your power to live at peace with all men, is the same person who wrote this verse just a few chapters later. In their minds, the loving thing to do is not to avoid these people, but just to love them by drawing closer and closer, to show them sympathy, to show them concern, to woo them back into fellowship by hanging around with them. And there are times when it is appropriate to pursue someone, to bring them into your circle of friends. There's a time when it's appropriate to draw near. But at some point, at some point, when people demonstrate the hardness of their own hearts and begin to turn and take divisive action, the New Testament is clear. You must make a decisive break a fellowship. Paul tells Titus in Titus 3.10, As for the person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, and he is self-condemned. This is so often the mistake that we make. We try to be too patient with people who have these divisive attitudes, when the Scripture calls you to be decisive in acting against them, not, not just a multiple over and over again, never-ending attempts at reconciliation, but after reasonable attempts. Paul says just one or two. Once you see their hearts, you must separate. Paul says that they're self-condemned. Their, 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 their behavior reveals where they stand. It reveals how little they are willing to apply the gospel to the situation. And that's what he means when he says they're warped in their understanding of grace. They're warped in the sense that they're sinful. They're, that the, the, the behavior that they're exhibiting demonstrates all that you need to know about where they are. And so... As he says here in Romans 16, you have to take note of them, call them out, have nothing to do with them. He uses the same terminology in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 when he says, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with them that they might be ashamed. Again, you have someone acting contrary 
to the teaching of Paul's letter, contrary to what he had said to the Thessalonians in that letter, this was not a doctrinal issue. This was a behavioral issue. Their life was contrary to what had been taught. Their life was contrary to what he had written. And because they would not repent, Paul says, take note of them and have nothing to do with them. Why? So that they might be ashamed. They wanted, no doubt, like people sometimes do, they they wanted all the benefits of friendship and fellowship, but they wanted to continue to hold on to their divisive approach and their divisive stance. And Paul says, instead, they ought to feel ashamed for what they've done. They ought to feel the full burden of the shame of what they've done. They ought to be burdened by being rejected and being dismissed. They, they ought to be ashamed. They shouldn't be allowed to continue to claim the joys of fellowship and friendship with the body of Christ when they are the very ones who are attacking it. And yet, when Paul says this, have nothing to do with them, Allow them to feel the full shame of the rejection. You have to understand there's a purpose behind that. This isn't just cruelty. This isn't just maliciousness. And it certainly is not retaliatory. Because he qualifies it there in 2 Thessalonians 3.15. He says immediately, Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So you're supposed to avoid them have nothing to do with them in a certain way, and yet you don't treat them like an enemy. And this is always the difficulty. This is always where people struggle so much. They, they don't want to be mean, and yet they understand clearly what the Scripture says. Like I said, it's unambiguous. They understand they have a responsibility to avoid such people. And I think if you understand what Paul has in mind here, when you understand the entire process of even discipline within the church, you understand that, that even as you move towards a, a disfellowshipping, you might say, even as you reach a point where people are being put outside the church, none of that is ever for the sake of retaliation. It's always conciliatory. It's always for reconciliation, even when you disfellowship someone. And Paul wants us to understand, when he speaks about avoiding these people, what he's talking about is casual fellowship. He's not talking about seeing them in the grocery aisle and turning around, going the other way, trying to avoid them. You don't treat them like an enemy, but instead you do what? You warn him as a brother. So whatever contact you have should certainly be friendly, just not casual. It ought to be purposeful for the function of warning them as a brother. And so you might think about it this way. There, there's a kind of contact that we might say is cordial. That is, in certain public settings and in certain public places, you show kindness to the extent that you extend these cordial greetings. You don't want to be mean. You don't want to be unkind. That wouldn't glorify Christ or be consistent with His gospel. You certainly wouldn't want to make what we would call a public scene. But there are other forms of contact that go beyond just being cordial to what we might call casual. That's when you move beyond the public venues into more private settings, inviting people over for a meal, having them over at a party, hanging out at a restaurant, watching a game together, or whatever it might be. This is the kind of casual fellowship that Paul wants you to avoid. It's the kind of thing that he told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 5, that when someone is walking disobediently 
to the gospel, he says, don't even so much as eat with them. Don't even so much as eat with them. You don't want to have that kind of casual contact and fellowship with them. They ought to feel the sting of the shame of what they've done. But then there's a kind of contact that isn't cordial and isn't casual. We might say it's correctional. It is getting together for the purpose of correction. For the purpose of, you might even say, confrontation. Getting together with them, and you're not there for, to, to be a, a shoulder to cry on. You're not there to uh, just sort of hang out and, and, and do nothing. You are there purposefully, intentionally. As Paul says to the Thessalonians, you warn him. You warn him, you warn her as a brother or sister in Christ. That's the purpose of your meeting. And that's the balance that he's really talking about here when he says that you're to have nothing to do with this person at the same time you you love them as a brother. These are difficult situations. No one rejoices in this kind of decisive action with people with whom you've enjoyed fellowship and even done ministry for so many years. But the message of Scripture is clear. We must act decisively we must avoid these people have nothing to do with them why because they are in their current state dangerous they're dangerous paul tells titus they're self-condemned they've done this to themselves it's not so much that you are disfellowshipping them it's not so much that you've chosen to break fellowship with them it's that they have condemned themselves they've done this to themselves And as he says here in Romans 16, verse 18, such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Paul says their speech is full of smooth talk and flattery, and it is aimed at deceiving you. It is aimed at deceiving you. They are crafty, with their words. Crestologia is the word that Paul uses here. It's, it's translated someplace as smooth talk, other versions, fine words, good words. It basically means words that sound good. It puts together the basic word for good and the word for word, and it talks about good sounding words. You sit together with them, you listen to what they say, and the words sound good. They sound, as some translations put it, plausible. Well, these, what they're saying is plausible. I mean, it's not a completely harebrained, ridiculous kind of idea. They have this kind of smooth, plausible speech when you're with them. And then they add to it flattery, eulogia, a word from which we get eulogy. So they start saying a, nice, a bunch of nice things about you. They start saying how great you are and how you are their best bud, basically their favorite person, whatever. We all know what flattery is when you pretend like someone is uh, your confidant and whenever it's expedient, they turn against you. And Paul's saying this is the kind of speech you'll encounter and it will deceive the hearts of the naive. Or as some versions have it, deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. It's a good translation. It's the word akakos, The people who have no malice in their hearts. These are not people who are predisposed 
to do evil things necessarily. They're not predisposed necessarily to be suspicious of others. They just kind of like going through life and thinking well about everyone. They're generally unsuspicious. They're generally unsuspecting people. I mean, it's not a negative trait necessarily. You're just generally a good-hearted person, but Paul is warning that this can be a danger to you. Because you can be vulnerable to these kinds of people. You can be vulnerable to these kinds of words. You just kind of take it all at face value. You just assume that it's all factual. And when, they, when they're, they're giving you their good uh, speech and their plausible words, you just kind of think, well, it kind of all makes sense. I, I kind of piece it all together. And you don't bother doing any kind of uh, digging or research. You just sort of all believe it. You kind of take it all in, and in the end, you are deceived. You're drawn into the trap, and they lead you to do what is sinful, which is what? To divide from brothers and sisters in Christ. All of a sudden, you're no longer preserving the unity of the body in the bond of peace. They have put, as Paul says, a stumbling block, an obstacle that you end up tripping over. You notice what Paul says in verse 19. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Paul's saying, you know, you've got a reputation. And I'm grateful for your reputation. You want to obey. I mean, your obedience is known to everyone. I'm grateful that you want to obey. You want to listen. You have a great reputation for that. But don't listen to these guys. Don't listen to these people who are trying to get you to sinfully separate from your brothers and sisters in Christ. He says, I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Don't be naive. Don't be so innocent-minded that you allow yourself to be taken in by the smooth talk and the semantic tricks of these people. Show some wisdom in what is good. Show some maturity. Understand the big picture here. It's always the heartbreaking thing with these kinds of divisive movements because you see so many dear people, beloved people, sweet people who are swept up in the whole thing. And you know they're not predisposed to go around disliking folks. But they've just been swept up. They've just opened up their mind naively to these semantic games and the smooth-sounding speech. They're just unsuspecting, you might say. They're not watching out. And they don't act in the end with real wisdom and real maturity. Their hearts are good. But their pathway is dangerous. And in the end, what was a good reputation, in the end, what was a good standing, a good reputation for being someone who followed Christ and being obedient, that reputation becomes ruined because they get drawn into this sin and their innocent minds are corrupted. It's a sad, sad thing to see. Of course, if you've been around the church for very long, you've seen it far too many times. It happens because the enemy is always on the attack. It happens because he wants to do harm to the body of Christ. And once the devastation has happened and the dust begins to settle and you look around and you say, what, what, what just 
happened? Where, where did all this stuff come from? I mean, how in the world did we get to this? How did all this happen? I've had so many people over this past summer ask me that very question in our own situation. What, what happened here? What caused divisions and, and created these stumbling blocks in our church? Well, you can search through the Scriptures. There are so many things, really, that cause divisions. There are a number of them. Obviously, at the top of the heap would be false teaching, which thankfully we've not had to endure here. But, but Paul says that causes divisions sometimes. He says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and doesn't agree with sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit. He understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels about words which produce envy and dissensions and slander and evil suspicions and constant friction among people. So so there's some people who their conceit leads them to to pursue some other doctrine and they just love the fight and they love to wrangle about words. 1 Corinthians 11 speaks about people who are dividing within the body of Christ simply over, it seems, gender issues. Just, Just who gets the power, whether it's the men or the women. Earlier, Paul even talked about how some people divide claiming that they're loyal to a man. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. And so they're going to go wherever they go because they just don't even want to begin to imagine that whoever their personal loyalty is to would somehow lead them astray. 1 Corinthians 3, he says the real cause behind all this is ultimately the flesh. He says, for where there's jealousy and strife, are you not of the flesh and behaving in a real human way. So he gets a little bit more to the heart of the issue. It's really the, an issue of the flesh. False doctrine, human loyalties, the flesh. But there's always a deeper root issue. There's always something more. James probably spells it out as clearly as anyone. James 4. What causes quarrels? And what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your desires are at war within you? You desire and do not have, and so you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. There is, in other words, at the heart of every quarrel, something that somebody wants and they didn't get. There's something that they desired, whether it is Money or power or prestige or control or whatever it might be. There's something that they want and they're not getting and so they fight and they quarrel and they cause divisions. And this is always at the heart of the issue. It's always at the heart of the issue. When Paul says that people turned away from from sound doctrine, what does he say? Because what? They're conceited. They're puffed up in their own mind. Ultimately, as James says, you don't have because you don't ask. These are people who don't, they're not content to simply trust the Lord. They're not content to just pray and, and rest within His sovereignty. They want to take matters into their own hand. They want to control the situation. So they begin to fight and quarrel to try to get their own way. And right here in Romans, when you look at what Paul says, what is he saying? Such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. This is where it comes from. They have begun to serve their own 
appetites, literally their own bellies. And most people understand Paul not to be talking about some food craving here, but he's, he's using it figuratively to refer to self-centered desires. Self-centered desires. It's the same dynamic that James tells us. This outward conflict is a reflection of an inward desire that is raging within you. It's raging within you. Or as Titus, over in Titus chapter 3, which I read uh, a reference to you earlier, when he's talking about the divisive person, when he says that he is to be rejected, stirring up division, he's to be rejected, knowing that he is warped and he's sinful, this is what he's talking about. They've become perverted in their desires. Their desire is no longer supremely to serve Christ. Their desire is no longer supremely to see the gospel advance. Their desire is no longer supremely to see the church united. Their desire is no longer supremely just to worship and and to, to live out the gospel. Now they have exalted something. Some heart desire at the center of it all. And they are serving it. And they might woo you with plausible words, they might woo you with good-sounding words and with flattery, but if you just pierce through all of that and ask yourself this basic question, what did they desire and not get? What did they desire and not get? And you'll find the real source of the conflict. You can't be naive. You can't be unsuspecting. Of course, it's not just selfishness. They're dangerous for that reason. They're dangerous because they have this smooth talk and flattering speech and they will woo you in and so you need to avoid them. Now, they're dangerous there, certainly, because they're selfish, but even more dangerous than that. Paul says they're also satanic. My <laughs> Shane... Wait, wait, wait a second. I mean, I can see that there's selfishness sometimes going on in the hearts of people. I can get that. I understand that. I mean, we all kind of struggle with that. I know they might be a little bit off in their desires, but to say that they are satanic, it's a little bit strong, don't you think? Well, I'm just telling you what Paul says. That this kind of divisiveness has an ultimate source unwittingly, I'm not saying that anyone has gone out there and just sold their soul to the enemy, but you look at what Paul says in verse 20. He brings us really to a second principle that protects the church, but also reveals this, this whole working of the evil one. Our our principle continually rests in God's victory because when you realize what's going on, you realize this is a lot bigger than you first imagined. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, he says. He's letting them know this is ultimately the work of the enemy. Someone unwittingly has opened up their life to a level of unforgiveness, to a level of selfishness that has made themselves now an instrument in the hands of the enemy. And Paul doesn't want you to be naive about it, nor does he want you to cower in fear. He's not saying, as I said, that these people who are wrapped up in devices are actively seeking to do the bidding of the evil one. I'm sure they would tell you with their smooth talk and their flattering speech that they just want to do what Christ wants. They just want to do whatever. But Paul knows where this is really coming from. 
As he tells the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, when they are operating with unforgiveness in their hearts, he says in 2 Corinthians 2.11, they wouldn't forgive and he warns them. He says, we do not want to be outwitted by Satan for we're not ignorant of his schemes. He's saying it's possible for you to be ignorant of how Satan would use your unforgiveness. It's possible for you to be ignorant of the ways in which he works. It's possible for you to be naive about all of that. People do it all the time. They just sort of see this unforgiveness, they see this divisiveness, and they just sort of uh, assume that it's uh, just on the surface, maybe, you know, sort of par for the course, or maybe it's just some surface issue. They sort of listen to the plausible words and they kind of construct in their mind how it all makes sense in their mind. Paul says, well, it's coming from selfish desires in men's hearts, but worse than that, it ultimately has its source in Satan. And he wants to to assure us that no matter how bad it gets, no matter how desperate it might seem, the good news is that the God of peace is will soon crush Satan under your feet, which is an interesting designation. He doesn't call him the God of war. Doesn't call him the God of hate. Doesn't call him the God of judgment. He is the God of peace. You wouldn't normally associate peace with crushing someone. But that's the image Paul gives us here. This God of peace. This God who loves peace. This God who calls us to peace. This God who's all about peace. He understands that there's a battle going on. He understands that this is a war. And you can't have peace unless, first of all, you identify and acknowledge who the real enemy is. And you can't have peace unless you deal with his schemes and plans. And Paul is assuring us that God is doing that. Interesting phrase. He will soon crush Satan under your feet. Uh, almost everyone acknowledges that that's an allusion to Genesis 3.15, the Proto-Evangelicum. Excuse me, the Proto-Evangelium. It's the third chapter of the Bible, but it's the first really preaching of the gospel that you'll find in all of Scripture. Immediately after Satan had tempted Adam and Eve and they fell into sin, uh, God comes along and curses the serpent who is Satan and says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. So you have this idea already, a reference to Jesus Christ thousands of years before he ever appeared on the earth and this prophecy that Satan would bruise the heel of Christ, but Christ would ultimately crush his head. And he picks up, Paul picks up on that promise as we might say an enduring promise that ultimately the enemy may attack the church But Christ is going to win in the end. Christ will build His church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Men may assault and certainly Satan will assault. Jesus told His disciples, He says, uh, Peace uh, be with you. Peace I leave with you. In the world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. You're going to have these difficult days. Just recognize it. It's not all going to be roses along the way. You're going to have troubles. But be sure of this. Do not lose heart. I have overcome the world. I've overcome the world. I will crush 
Satan's head. You cannot allow yourself to think in these troubling times that somehow Satan is winning because his defeat was sealed all the way back at the very beginning. He's already been overcome. He is already a defeated foe. And so there's real confidence during times of divisiveness and difficulty. There's confidence that Christ is watching over His church. He will not allow it to be defeated. He will not allow it to be thwarted. He will not allow it to be overcome. He'll protect. That's what I say to people all the time here. Look, I mean, I'm, this is not my job to protect the church. It's not my job to answer all these uh, accusations or whatever. It's Christ. He's the head of the church. It's ultimately His protection that I'm trusting in. My job is just simply to come and to, to declare what He says. My job is simply to walk according to His uh, commandments and to do His... But, but the ultimate thing, the, the ultimate protection doesn't come from me. doesn't come from our elders. doesn't come from any group or any, uh, anything that we do. It's Him. That's why I have the confidence to get up every morning. That's why I have the confidence to keep preaching. That's why I have the confidence to keep praying. That's why I have the confidence to keep preaching the gospel or doing whatever we're doing. It's because I have confidence in Him. Well, very quickly, just a a quick third principle that protects the church against the divisive work of the evil one. And that's simply this. Closely work with sacrificial servants. We don't need to spend a lot of time here, but But Paul basically gives a list here of greetings from verses 21 through 23. And really, this is just a continuation of the previous greetings he gave in verses 1 through 16. But there he gave us lots of descriptions and things that characterize the people. Here it's just almost just the names. I mean, he mentions Timothy and Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, who he calls fellow workers and kinsmen, or Tertius, who is the amanuensis, the person Paul would have been dictating to, and, and, and Tertius was the one actually writing the words down. He puts a greeting in there for himself. And he mentions, Paul mentions his host in Corinth, who is Gaius, a man who obviously was well enough off to have a big house because he also hosted the church. And then there's Erastus, the city treasurer, who uh, we're told still has a marble plaque with his name on it today from the first century. This, this wealthy and influential man had obviously come to know Christ and was using his influence and his resources, no doubt, for the kingdom of God. But beyond all of that, we don't know a lot about these guys, with the exception maybe of Timothy. All we know is that Paul had several close workers. He was no lone ranger. He didn't isolate himself. He built close and lasting relationships so that this ensures a level of integrity. It it ensures a level of accountability. It's one of the best things that you can do for yourself to guard and protect yourself against the kind of things which cause divisions, whether it is on one hand the, the, the selfish desires that arise up within you or on the other hand whether it is even people that would want to draw you away. One of the best things you can do is to surround yourself with those who are sacrificially serving the Lord. You find the people who are pursuing Christ sacrificially, you get around those kinds of people, and you arm yourself, you shield yourself against those kinds of things. And you will know, you will know a person by the kinds of friends that he surrounds himself with. And so Paul's able to say, look, I'm, 
I'm sending you my greetings and I'm sending you from all these other wonderful servants. Some of them who have known Paul for a long time. Timothy had been with him eight years at this point. Had seen him in his good times and his bad times. You go to the people who knew Paul best and they would tell you, yeah, he's a man of weaknesses. He's a man who has his frailties. But I want to tell you, he's a genuine servant of the Lord. So this is one of our strategies, I guess. One of the ways in which the Lord protects the church is he just, you just surround yourself with those kinds of people. And you're inspired by the example of who you serve alongside. You see them sacrificing the way they sacrifice, you want to be like them. And you're held accountable by them. That's my, my daily experience. I mean, I just... I just see the kind of people that I get to serve with all the time. And I'm just always on my face before the Lord saying, Lord, teach me. Teach me by the example of these men, these women, the way that they serve, the way they give. Just, I'm humbled by it. Paul had that going on in his life as well. Protection. We're grateful We're grateful that the Lord watches over and protects His church, but we also know we have a role to play. We can't be exposing ourselves to those obstacles, those things that are going to draw us into sinful pathways. We have a role to play in protecting the church of God. It's up to us to do it. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Lord, we are grateful for the clarity with which Your Word speaks. We... We cannot rejoice over these times. It grieves our hearts to see those who would divide from the body of Christ, but we also cannot fear. We're unshaken in our confidence in you. We pray for them. We pray, Father, that you would reconcile them. They are beloved brothers and sisters in Christ. But we cannot control ultimately what they do. We must be obedient to you. And so we pray that you would give us clarity of mind and fullness of conviction. Guard and protect the flock. Watch over it as the good shepherd. Cover us and guard us as a husband would his bride. And may you continue your favor upon Faith Community Church and on all the churches of God, wherever they may meet, that the enemy would not prevail but your name would be magnified. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.